Viva la Révolution! Bonjour et bienvenue à Histoire en Film. Je m'appelle Rich Simmons. Sorry for my poor French there. Today we continue with the French Revolution with the aptly named The French Revolution, available in two parts on Amazon, currently free to stream if you have Amazon Prime. I do have to say I have a much better grasp on the French Revolution than I had before, and I know movies aren't meant to be reliable sources for learning history, but this breakdown of the French Revolution through various films highlights why I was so excited about this project in the first place. By the end of this, I'll have 100 plus episodes that really do give a nice overview of world history. Yes, it's incomplete. Yes, it has a Western bias. But hey, cut me some slack. This film is supposedly considered quite accurate, so let's just get right into it. There's a fair amount of overlap with Farewell My Queen and Marie Antoinette, the movie. We open at a ball in Versailles in 1788, so a year before the storming of the Bastille. We see the queen and her BFF, Gabrielle, gambling. The king's with his many advisors, and it is agreed that the only way to deal with their increasingly high debt is to raise taxes. We cut to Paris and meet the man this film paints as the hero of the revolution, Georges Danton. Though he's no revolutionary at the start here. Sure, he'd like it if society were more equitable, but doesn't think any drastic change is possible. There are small riots over food. Some people appear to be hoarding grain and selling it slowly at an artificially high price, so profiteering. We jump to May 5th, 1789. The king is hopeful that all can agree on the best solution to the country's troubles, specifically their growing debt. He wants to hear from the people. We meet another important figure, the Marquis de Lafayette, played by Sam Neill, who you'd recognize from Jurassic Park if you don't recognize his name. Lafayette is touted as a hero of the American Revolution, which, yes, he did indeed lead American troops in battle against the British, even though he was just 19 in 1776. He's extremely popular with the French people. There are three main categories assembled, the nobility, the clergy, and the so-called third estate, which basically means everyone else, the common people. The voting is weighted, it appears, so even though the third estate is by far the largest, the nobility and clergy outnumber the third estate two to one when it comes time to vote for things. We do briefly see Marie Antoinette and the king burying their young son that was left out of last week's movie. This was in June of 1789. Unlike last week, where the whole movie covers four days, today's movie covers six years. Many clergy are joining with the third estate and say that together they'll represent 96% of the French population, so they will be heard. The king and his brother say privately that they must put their foot down. Their authority is all they have left. They come up with a flimsy excuse to keep the people from entering their usual meeting place. This leads to the famous tennis court oath of June 20th, 1789. The people have declared themselves the National Assembly and swear that they will not stop until France has a constitution. The king is confused and upset. I am the sole guardian of my people's welfare. The assembly is ordered to disperse but refuses. The king, however, doesn't push the issue. He doesn't want to use force against his people. The king's chief advisor resigns as he recognizes the grievances of the people as valid in a way that the king still does not. The people see this resignation as a cause for fear, that perhaps we could get another St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. The man attempting to rally the people to action here is Camille de Moulin. He's a young lawyer and idealist who becomes an important figure in the revolution. Here's where things get serious. The people rob an armory to arm themselves. 
This gets us to the beginning of what the old librarian told Sidney in Farewell, My Queen. Danton is recruited into the cause and gives a rousing speech saying that there is currently a direct attack on the will of the people. Why should we let one man dictate all of our lives? The next target was the Bastille. The people had guns but needed the powder stores of this prison slash armory. The people also just viewed the Bastille as a symbol of royal tyranny. The whole assault was chaotic. The governor of the Bastille tried to compromise with the people and talk them down, but there's a breakdown or misunderstanding during negotiations. Some shots are fired into the crowd by soldiers guarding the Bastille, and the people storm in. More soldiers arrive, and the governor thinks he's saved, but the soldiers join the people. The governor is beheaded, and his head is put on a spike and paraded around the town. Highlighting the dichotomy of Paris versus Versailles at that moment, we see the king write in his journal that nothing of note happened on July 14th. Again, if you remember from last week in Farewell, My Queen, when they mentioned that the king was awakened in the middle of the night on the morning of the 15th. Here we see it. The king asks if there has been a revolt and is told, no, sire, a revolution. The people cheer Danton and see this as a victory due in part to his inspiration. We see Gabrielle trying to convince Marie Antoinette to flee Versailles as well, but the king insists that they stay. He still hopes he can win his people over. He goes to Paris at their request, though it's really a demand. Basically, this is just the ultimate example of strength in numbers. The king has absolute power? Sure, but only until all the people decide he doesn't. Next, we and the king are introduced to the symbol of the French Revolution, the tricolor cockade, a small piece of circular cloth. A blue dot in the center, surrounded by a white circle, which is in turn surrounded by a red circle. The French flag today is these three vertical stripes, blue, then white, then red. If you rotate it into a circle, you'd basically have the tricolor cockade. The Marquis de Lafayette himself is credited with the design, and in the movie we see him presenting one to the king to wear and explaining its design. Blue and red are the historical colors of Paris, and the white is Lafayette's nod to the monarchy. And this points to the initial aim of the revolution, not to overthrow the king, but to establish a constitutional monarchy, like we see with the United Kingdom or Japan today. The king here in the film agrees to wear the tricolor cockade. Again, in every version of this story, Louis XVI just seems to be a victim of history, a kind, though perhaps ineffective king, who truly wants what's best for his people, but is in over his head. The people are in a mad rush to start developing laws themselves with a decided prejudice against the privileged class. We see nobles and clergy rushing to denounce their possessions to be seen on the side of the revolution. Freedom of the press is announced. Someone notes that the people are drunk on fine words and good intentions. The first significant document produced is the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen in August of 1789 so a little over a month after the storming of the Bastille. It is very much in spirit with the United States Declaration of Independence and Bill of Rights. In fact, though not featured in today's film, Thomas Jefferson helped Lafayette and another Frenchman draft it. Jefferson was the U.S. minister to France and was in Paris during the storming of the Bastille. As willing to compromise as the king has been, he says he can't sign off on this new declaration. Again, he's confused and hurt. There's a growing split amongst the revolutionaries as to whether they are trying to get the king to share power with the people and a constitutional monarchy, or whether the monarchy should be abolished altogether and a republic established. 
There was also some counter-revolution sentiment growing among supporters of the king. This helped fuel the next milestone in the revolution, which was the Women's March on Versailles that happened in early October of 1789. So we're still just within the first four months since the storming of the Bastille. It started with the women of the markets in Paris protesting the lack of bread available and grew into a mob of thousands that ended up breaking into the palace at Versailles. They've decided that they want Marie Antoinette's head. Order is somewhat restored, partly through the presence of Lafayette, whom the people love, and whom himself still cares for the royal family. He's definitely on the constitutional monarchy side of things. He appears with the king and queen in turn on the balcony to prove to the mob that they haven't fled, but the king is now at the mercy of his people, and it's at this point that he's now officially under the protection of the National Assembly. We jump to the following summer, June 1790. Life in Paris has settled down for the moment, and you wouldn't know things were different from before. The king being in custody is just a kind of thing in the background. No one would use the word prisoner. He still has the power to veto within the confines of the new French constitution. We see Dr. Joseph Guillotine showing the king a design for a new method of execution. The king even suggests that the blade should be triangular rather than curved. Now, I was as surprised as you will be to learn that Dr. Guillotine did not invent the device which bears his name. It was designed by a man named Antoine Louis. But Dr. Guillotine was a big advocate for the use of a painless method of execution. Though we still associate it with brutality, the goal was actually to move away from the more agonizing public deaths like Joan of Arc and William Wallace received. Camille de Moulin, our young lawyer who earlier urged the citizens arm themselves, is now running a newspaper to promote the ideas of the revolution. Everyone is optimistic about the future as the first anniversary of the revolution approaches. There are no signs of the dark turn things will soon take. July 14th, 1790. The king and queen are present at a celebration of the first anniversary of the storming of the Bastille. The first Bastille Day. When her young son starts clapping, however... Marie Antoinette puts her hands over his. Obviously, this has all not been a change for the better for them. I have yet to introduce Maximilien Robespierre. He appears to be in charge of the National Assembly at this point, and if I had been asked to name two key figures of the French Revolution before I started this research, the only two names I could have come up with were Danton and Robespierre. Indeed, their friendship and rivalry is a driving force of the rest of this movie. A month later, we get an incident worth noting, but that seems to have been streamlined in the movie just to get our characters together, though it's very much indicative of the mood in the country at the time. So the military is still in order, but most of the officers come from the nobility, so they're having a harder and harder time maintaining order over soldiers who come from the Third Estate. We see Lafayette putting down a mutiny by hanging those responsible for instigating it. Danton seems to side with the mutineers. He says he speaks for Paris. We're also starting to get hints that Danton is taking bribes on the side to push public opinion one way or the other. A dying friend of Danton and Desmoulins praises their work but fears that without the monarchy, all their positive change will slide into anarchy. Danton says that Lafayette hopes to establish a military dictatorship with Lafayette as a new Caesar. Danton simply wants to preside over a civilian government. Lafayette insists Danton wants an ignorant public that's blind to his corruption and profiteering. Then, after the king reasserts his Catholic faith, the people fear he favors Rome over France. We jump again to the next summer, June 1791. The king and his family have fled. 
The mob is mad at Lafayette for allowing him to escape. Danton says the people will want either the king's or Lafayette's head. Lafayette says then, for the good of the public, it should be declared that the king has been kidnapped and needs to be rescued and returned. De Milan knows this idea is a farce. He's probably the most pure idealist in this film. The royals are found and captured and returned to Paris. The people are outraged and Lafayette declares martial law. His goodwill with the people is coming to an end. Another revolutionary here worth mentioning is Jean-Paul Marat. He's not the polished politician that Danton and Robespierre are, but he's full of fiery rhetoric and the mob loves him. He flees London for his own safety after martial law is declared. Danton visits him in London and informs him Desmoulins' paper has been outlawed. There's word that the other monarchs of Europe are very concerned over what's happening in France and may try to intervene on Louis XVI's behalf. Back in Paris, many want to go a war against these meddling other nations. Robespierre is against it for the moment. April 1792, so nearly three years since the start of the revolution, Louis XVI publicly states that he supports their war against the rest of Europe to defend the dignity of the citizens of France. A week later, the French army gets its butt kicked by the Belgians. Marat is back in town and calls the king, Lafayette, and all those who supported the war traitors to the French people. The mob is very fickle and all these leaders of the revolution are swaying back and forth in the breeze of it while trying to maintain control. June 1792, the mob storms the palace of the Tuileries in Paris where the king now resides. Many are angry at the king still. He's earned the nickname Monsieur Vito. He nervously but calmly reminds them he's simply following the constitution that they established. Prussia, meanwhile, has declared that it will attack Paris if the king and his family are harmed. Robespierre now supports war as losing these battles is not an option. With the mob yet again at the Tuileries, the king calls upon the protection of the National Assembly and is allowed to leave the palace with his family to go to their meeting place. They awkwardly place themselves in the back offices while the assembly continues on with its business. Meanwhile, a fight breaks out at the Tuileries. People and soldiers are killed. The royal family goes from being under basically house arrest for the last three years to straight up political prisoners in a stone cell. De Moulin comments to Robespierre that it's over. The king is out of power and Danton leads a group of six ministers. But Robespierre fears we may just be at the beginning, not the end. Lafayette has had enough and flees France. He exits our tale for now. Danton wants to start executing traitors and things get ugly fast. Marat's mob breaks into prisons and kills political prisoners, mostly aristocrats. De Moulin is disturbed and tells Danton... They're slaughtering anyone suspected of supporting the king. Danton and Robespierre, however, agree that bloodshed is necessary to save all the progress they've made. Desmoulins says this isn't a revolution, it's a mockery. Danton does agree that the people are out of control. No one even knows who is in charge at this point. It's mob justice. The French army starts winning battles, and Danton is cheered by the people. One last revolutionary to name is Louis de Saint-Just. He gets up in front of the assembly and he says what no one else, outside of the mob, has dared to say publicly. The king must die. He's a rallying point for all our enemies, foreign and domestic. My personal thought here that's never really brought up is why couldn't he just abdicate and go into exile? They may not have let him, but it's never even mentioned as an idea. With the king present, the assembly votes on whether he should live or die. A few vote to commute his sentence but all we see in the film vote for death. Louis XVI goes to the guillotine with dignity and is executed. What follows is the most powerful moment in the movie. Cannons fire. 
signaling the king's death. We cut to his family in their prison cell, and they start to weep. But the young prince is still too little to know what's going on. He would have been seven at the time. Marie Antoinette kneels before her son. In her world, he just became the king of France. The revolutionaries are quickly learning that leading isn't easy. Their wars aren't going well now at the moment, and food shortages continue to be a problem. There are riots breaking out in the countryside. No one can agree on what direction to move the country next. Marat is calling for the heads of 100,000 traitors. Danton has him arrested, but it's a ploy. He and Robespierre want to set up a tribunal, making sure Marat is acquitted, by which they legitimize their own tribunal without seeming tyrannical. Robespierre tells Danton he's aware of his small corruptions and doesn't necessarily blame him. We see how they all conspire to take out political enemies. Marat is assassinated by a woman while soaking in a tub, and that actually happened. October 1793, Marie Antoinette is sentenced to death. On her way up to the steps to the guillotine, she stumbles and says, excuse me, to the executioner, which again, she is said to have actually done. Robespierre is becoming more and more harsh. At first, he shied away from war and executions. Now he's desperately afraid that all will be lost if they can't squash dissent. They start killing not just those who openly oppose the revolution, but anyone who can't prove they actively supported it. If you were neutral, you die. Danton had tried to retire, but Desmoulins convinces him to return to Paris as the only one with enough clout to stand up to Robespierre. Robespierre initially stands with Danton in public, but the two men can no longer abide each other privately. Lies and accusations lead more men to die. Desmoulins' wife even notes that no one is safe if the truth can be so easily twisted. Desmoulins is beaten in the streets for speaking out against Robespierre. In my notes at this point, I sum them up like this. Robespierre is a violent idealist. Danton is a slightly corrupt rationalist and the one the film makes a side with. He doesn't condone the mass killings. Danton and Desmoulins are arrested. Despite having the crowd on his side and a spectacular speech by Danton, he says, you're not leading me to death, I will live forever. They are guillotined as well. The mob is quickly turning on Robespierre, who has gotten even more ruthless. After Danton's trial made a fool of Robespierre, he's no longer making the mistake of having trials, just straight to execution for suspected counter-revolutionaries. This is unsustainable, and the committee finally turns on Robespierre, mockingly calling him a dictator. Robespierre claims there's a conspiracy against him, and they may as well prepare the hemlock for him now, comparing himself to Socrates, who was forced to drink poison. Robespierre is flustered and sick. When he coughs, the committee says he must be choking on Danton's blood. It's over for him, and the committee votes to execute Robespierre. He was killed on July 28, 1794, less than four months after Danton, and just a hair over five years after the storming of the Bastille. And this is where a nearly six-hour movie on the French Revolution ends, with much still left up in the air. But the idea is that the reign of terror died with Robespierre. Over 16,000 people across France lost their heads to the guillotine in basically just one year. A couple of literary notes. A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens is set during this time. The two cities of the title are London and Paris. And Les Miserables by Victor Hugo is not set during the French Revolution. I'll probably mention it again later, but it's set almost four decades later than our story here today. Basically, things in France were chaotic for a while. 
while all this was going on, a young general was making a name for himself in the various wars France found itself engaged in. Ten years after the death of Robespierre, this general would declare himself the first emperor of France. Tune in next week as we discuss the Napoleonic era in Europe with 2003's Master and Commander. <laughs>